Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? All my life. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy, Ben White. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You're going to learn about where the sport has been, where we think it's going to go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. So, Ben, Mayetta, New Jersey. I don't know a whole lot about Mayetta, New Jersey. I don't think I've ever been there. Um, but they have uh, they, they've churned out quite a race car driver in, in, that, in, in that area of the Mid-Atlantic. I consider New Jersey to be the Mid-Atlantic with uh, old Martin Truex Jr. Um, figured we kick off episode 19, driver of the number 19 car, Martin Truex Jr. I mean, the driver of the week for a lifetime in NASCAR. Ben, we've uh, we've both followed Truex's career from the time he was uh, certainly in the Bush Series. Maybe in your case, even when he was in what then was the Bush North Series, now was the Arca Menards Series East. Uh, had to be very careful to make sure I got that right. Um, but you know, throughout this guy's career, and Truex is such a rare case, right? Because he's he, he's really a late bloomer in the Cup Series. You know, his first decade or so, he only had about two wins. Um, but man, he really, uh, they switched to Furniture Row in 2015, or 14, I should say, and got his first win with them in 15, and uh, they've been rocking and rolling, switched a lot of those guys from that team to Joe Gibbs Racing for 2019, and um, they haven't really let up, have they? No, I tell you what, they it's a great combination that they found there with uh, with Joe Gibbs and, and Martin Truex Jr., but you got to go all the way back to a little speedway up there in, in his area up in New Jersey, and a lot of the Cup Series drivers through the years have enjoyed racing there. It's a little speedway called Wall Stadium Speedway. Yeah. And it's just a little hole-in-the-wall kind of place, no pun intended, but a tough, tough little racetrack. It actually reminds me just a smidge of Bowman Gray Stadium up in Winston-Salem, but I'm telling you what, a tough little place to race. And, and a lot of guys have kind of cut their teeth up there at Wall Stadium Speedway, and including the, the Truex family. And... I think Martin Truex Sr. raced there some, and then that's kind of where Martin uh, has raced. And, of course, Ryan Truex also is a little brother. But i got to tell you a funny story, and Martin and I still laugh about this, and it's one of these days where Ben White does what he does best, which is stick his size 12 foot in his mouth. Hey, we have the same shoe size. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay, well. We do. You know, here's the deal, man. I just just did this one day. We're in uh, Vegas, I believe, 
And I was trying to do one of these things like for Pole Position magazine. And it was, who, who are you named after? Okay. And it came out completely wrong. And so every time I see Martin now, he says, you know who I'm named after, right? And I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was one <laughs> of those good. deals where I said, so who, who are you named after? Of course, he's Martin Drex Jr. He's like, of course, I was named after my dad. Well, what I was trying to say was, and it came out completely wrong, I was trying to say, where does the name Martin come from? Was it a grandfather, great-grandfather, uncle? But it came out, hey, man, who are you named after? Duh, I was named after my dad because his name is Martin Truex Sr. And we still we still laugh about that. So every time he sees me in a press conference or I see him on pit road, he said, hey, you do know who I'm named after, right? So we still joke about that, but it came out completely wrong. And it's one of those you know, great little stories about how Ben White can stick his foot in his mouth. So we joke about it. And he, he always winks at me and said, I know, you don't even have to ask. I know who, who you're named after. So it, he's just a fun, fun guy to talk to. And, and you know what? If you lived under a rock or you didn't know anything about NASCAR and you saw him on the street and he steps out and he's eating an ice cream cone or something, he would just sit down with you on a bench and talk to you all afternoon about the sky, the weather, Hey, look at that car coming by. You would never, ever know he was a superstar race car driver. Very, very down-to-earth guy. And, of course, he would talk to you about fishing, and that's where he grew up. He grew yep. up, you know, uh, fishing on fishing boats yep. uh, up there, and, and that's what his family did, and that's how they made all their money was, you know, running fishing boats and uh, out there in, in Mayetta, New Jersey. Super nice guy. If you ever had a chance to just sit down with him and, have an ice cream cone or a beer or whatever. He treats you like family immediately. Great guy. So I got to ask, Ben, was this uh, was this Truex question? Was it in a press conference where like a crowd of people heard this? Or was it just you no. guys talking? <laughs> no, thank God it wasn't. It was actually, uh, we were just, I believe it was after, after maybe the, I believe, where were we? I was trying to think. I, I think it was at Vegas, to be honest with you. Okay. Uh, and, and when we were there for a championship weekend and, you know, just kind of catching up on some questions after he had done some photos and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, that, I believe that's where it was. And, and we were just, just a one-on-one thing. And <laughs> just I just still laugh at myself about that. I am so good at making myself look like an idiot sometimes. But hey, you know, we all have to laugh at ourselves. But I didn't mean for the question to come out that way. I was trying to say, were well, you named after a grandfather, uncle, that kind of thing. And he, he did say to me, you know what? I really don't know where the name Martin comes from. I have to look that up and, and get back to you on that. But a- after we talked later, I said, man, and later on, we were being serious. I said, I didn't mean for that to come out the way it did. I was trying to ask it a certain way. He said, yeah, I know, man, I'm just picking on you. But he said, I, honestly, I really don't know where the name Martin comes from. I, I kind of need to ask my my dad where that came from but it just came out completely wrong and i knew he was a junior but he just looked at me so funny he's like man you know i am a junior right it is like yes i know that but it was just kind of you know i had to be there but it was just kind of funny on my part so if i if i was him i would have uh i just would have kind of not missed a beat and been like oh martin lawrence or martin sheen (laughs) um you know or mark martin you know there's 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 martin luther martin luther king you know there's a lot of martin donnelly the former f1 driver you know there's there's a lot of good options um yeah you know but uh so the first time i met truex ben was uh i was in high school I had just gotten my first car like a couple of days before that. And me and my dad took it to uh, Concord Mills Bass Pro Shops 
Um, he was driving in the Bush Series then for uh, Chance Two Racing, Chance Two Motorsports, Chance Two Racing, Chance Two, whatever. And uh, mm-hmm. you know Dale Junior's team, so obviously that's, that's my squad. And uh, so I was I was pulling for Truex. He did an autograph session at this Bass Pro, and we went out there like I don't know half an hour hour early. We were like fourth or fifth in line. Uh, Matt Truex, my mom had this outfit, like this button-up shirt and this nice outfit for me to wear and uh, to take a picture with Truex, which we did take, but um, I snuck my Dale Jr. Budweiser hat on my head and wore that, so I have this picture of me in this Budweiser hat that doesn't match my outfit at all, um, but when you're, I was like 16, you know, when you're, when you're that age, you know, you just don't think about, um, you don't think about the logic of uh, matching your clothes when you're going to meet a race car driver, um, so... But he was cool. Every time I've ever interacted with Martin, he's always been nice. He's a consummate professional in press mm-hmm. conferences. We've had him for some uh, some press events. Always pleasant to talk to. Super professional guy. Um, you know, in PR terms, he definitely stays you know on message. He hits the talking points, you could say. But uh, he's also just a hell of a race car driver, you know. And yeah. uh, I, I got to say this about Truex as well. You know, certainly his career has really taken off since 2016. Uh, and the Coca-Cola 600 win, which we discussed in episode number 18. We'll get a, a little bit more on that a little bit later in this episode as well. But uh, since that race, his career certainly really taken off. He's uh, he's won about everything there is to win except for a Daytona 500 now. Um, but he's definitely owned Charlotte Motor Speedway at various intervals over the last few years. Didn't have the run that they uh, expected this year in the 600, and then a flat tire really ruined it. Um, but he's safely locked into the, the playoffs. He's got more wins than anybody else right now, and is well on the way to being one of the title favorites when we uh, we get to November, but long way before that. So uh, Truex, you know, like I said, super awesome guy, Ben. But, um, yeah, he uh, we had him out for a press event one time, and he met all the folks in the ticket office, and they had a great picture, and he's just a super pleasant guy to talk to. Um, good personality. I watched him, went to several bush races just to see him race. And one in particular was at Charlotte 2004 in a little race called the SpongeBob SquarePants, the movie 300, um, which thank God that was a one-off race for a name, a name for mm. a race. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and he, got, he and Kyle Busch kind of got into it at that race. They were both fighting for the championship. Truex was a chance too, and Kyle was with Hendrick. And uh, they, they got together a little bit on track. Uh, both of them finished the race, and then Truex was really pissed off after the race. And I was listening to him on the radio, and his crew chief, I think it was Kevin Mannion, was like uh, – you know, all right, calm down, man, calm down. We don't need any penalties here. So he just like got up behind him and tailgated Kyle Busch all the way from the back stretch to pull into the garage area. But he didn't hit him, so he didn't get any penalty. Um, and they've had a couple of run-ins, you know, since they moved to the Cup Series. But now, I guess they're friends, uh, been teammates. You know, it's their third year's teammates now uh, officially, and um, as a satellite teammate with, with Furniture Row now, it would be a sixth year. So. Uh, they've certainly become more well acquainted, and it's kind of interesting to see Truex, uh, Ben, in my opinion, kind of take over the mantle as you know the most successful Gibbs driver. You got Denny racking up the top fives, but really Truex is the one you know taking the trophies for the the Toyota camp lately. And um, who would have thought that? Who would have thought right. ten years ago when he was driving with MWR? Who would have thought that this guy would become not just as successful as he has been, but also as popular as he is? So when I was driving in the Speedway. 600 weekend um you go through the main entrance you know, get to the infield and all and i like to like scout out the fans like see what merchandise people are having see what uh flags that they're flying you know who who are the popular people um 
Big shocker here, Chase Elliott was the most popular. I know you mm. contain your surprise. But yeah. honestly, second in terms of like people wearing his T-shirts and hats and stuff was Martin Truex Jr. by a mile. It was yeah. Chase, and then the Truex, was, they were 1A and 1B. Uh, saw quite a bit of Larson, Kyle Busch, Blaney, some of the, um, you know, the, the usual suspects. But, yeah, Truex is, is super popular. Um, a couple of years ago, I did a work share at Atlanta for the spring Atlanta race when it was the only Atlanta race. Now we can call it the spring Atlanta race again. Um, and there was a ton of people there wearing Truex stuff, too. So the guy's gotten super popular. Certainly winning helps, right? But, like, you know, I think it's more than that. Um, Truex is a really cool guy, and I think a lot of people can relate to him. This is still a sport of people who have a great passion for hunting and fishing and outdoors, and he shares all that. Um, so happy to see him succeed. But, Ben, he's not the only guy who's driven the number 19 car. There have been quite a few people to wheel that, that 19 machine around in the Cup Series race. Uh, who are some of, in your eyes, the the notable ones that, that we should know about? Well, there's there's a guy that did not win in the 19 car that I was a fan of back in the 70s that I really liked him a lot. And, and it's not a name that you really, uh, I guess, pinpoint too much. But there was a guy named Henley Gray who uh, he was an independent driver. When I say independent, he was one of those guys like uh, Frank Warren and a, and a guy that we know very well today, Richard Childress, who drove cars sure. uh, in the 70s. Uh, you know, some of those got like a James Hilton and and a DK Ulrich. Those guys, when I say independent, I mean he didn't get the backing from GM or, say, Dodge or, or uh, Ford that some of the other guys did, but they'd show up every week. And those are the kind of guys that, you know, NASCAR deemed – the guys that that the leaders would pass every week, and they they sort of raced among themselves for 18th, 19th, 20th every week. They knew they weren't going to win because they didn't have the money to win, but they were very very integral parts of these uh, lineups from first to 40th to be out there in the field. And and Henley Gray was one of those guys who ran number 19 for many many years. But as time went on, the number 19 did. Uh, become a prominent car and, and a couple of uh, well one particular victory that still comes to mind was September 11th tw- 2004 and that was when Jeremy Mayfield was driving for Ray Evernham. Yep, Richmond. He, Richmond, yeah, and he led a total of 151 or 400 laps and he by winning that race got into the chase that year. It was a big victory for Jeremy to you know to win that race and and of course like I said that that meant going into the what is now the playoffs. That was his last but, win, wasn't it? I believe it was his yeah, last win. I yeah, he won a, a total of five Cup Series victories. Yeah, a uh, couple for Ray Everham and I think three for Team Penske or Roger Penske. But that was one one there. And then I think uh, Elliot Sadler drove the number nineteen for Ray Everham. And then we get into uh, of course the the nineteen that. Martin Truex has taken that car to victory lane, and and so yeah, it's, it it became more of a prominent number with some some drivers. But yeah, I just always remember Henley Gray uh, taking that car every year in the field, and and he didn't win with the number nineteen. But no, I want to I want to step back with Martin Truex just for one one second. Bring it the back first. Okay, bring it back. The first victory Martin had was June fourth, two thousand seven and uh, in the cup series and he, mm-hmm. it came at dover delaware he lay 216 laps he was driving for Dale Earnhardt incorporated and sadly there there's a, a footnote to that victory 
that day. And that day was when Bill French Jr. sadly passed away. That's the one thing. Every time I think about that victory, Martin Truex's victory at Dover, but the day that uh, that Bill French Jr. passed away. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And so uh, Bill. I remember that race though, Ben. I remember I was getting my hair cut at Saints Barbershop in Morganton, North Carolina, watching the end of that race. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember obviously being a big deal because it's one of his home racetracks. So it was a huge mm -hmm. accomplishment for Martin to win there, and to make it his first win. And it was also DEI's last win as as a race team, as it were. So yeah, several uh, good and bad things came out of that race, no question about it. But Ben, uh, before we switch away from Henley Gray, I do have to say that when you start talking about Henley Gray, all I could think of was the name Henley Gray sounds like a tag on something you'd find at J. Crew. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you ever shopped at J. Crew. I haven't. Uh, um, no, I can't recall that I ever did. It gives me uh, that vibe that like Henley Gray is like something I would see um, if I was shopping for clothes at J. Crew. I don't know why J. Crew. It just seems like the right one. Um, but there's another 19 car. Uh, our man who we've discussed a couple times in the Lifetime and NASCAR podcast, Loy Allen Jr., drove the 19 car. That's your Daytona 500 pole winner in 1994, the number 19 Hooters Ford for TriStar Motorsports. I think it was right. owned by Mark Smith. Um, and again, we I have to touch on this. If you guys didn't hear the episode when we talked about Loy Allen, one of the coolest historical accomplishments of all time. Uh, Loy Allen started the 1994 Cup Series season by winning the pole for the first race of the season qualifying last for the second race of the season, failing to qualify for the third race of the season, and then winning the pole for the fourth race of the season. So he went first, last, D and Q first. I don't think anybody's ever going to do that again. No, I don't think so. And I don't think it, I don't know that it had ever been done prior to that either. So that's an interesting stat for sure. I bet you he doesn't even remember that, Ben, but I do. I thought it was cool. I don't remember how I found it a few years ago. Maybe it on a trading car or something, but, um, you know when they when they relaxed the rules for the Bush Clash, and it, you know it was like any Daytona 500 pole winner. I was like, oh come on, please, Loy Allen, get a car and come back and race. Because I mean, I thought that meant that he could get in the field, you know, if he wanted to, or um, or any Daytona 500 pole winner. But um, he's definitely one of the ones that like if you had to list everybody who's won the pole for the Great American Race, probably not a lot of people are gonna remember him. But I thought that was really cool because he just I think he just edged Dale Earnhardt Sr to grab that pole. Um, <laughs> I mean, at that time, that was probably one of the biggest accomplishments a 19 car had ever had. Oh, I think so. And, and uh, I mean, let's face it, a pole position for the Daytona 500 is pretty impressive. That is NASCAR's most prestigious race. And it, and to win the Daytona 500, uh, it's, it's an exclusive club of people uh, to be able to be in to say to your kids or grandkids, well, that's the one thing you can't say everybody can have is to win the Daytona 500. I mean, that might be the only victory the guy had, but that could make a guy's career. Let's be honest. I mean, however you get to the front and, and however you win that race is like, I, I could say that I'm one of what, 55 guys or whatever to win it. And you, you can take that one and put the trophy on the mantle and say, I won that race. So that, that's a big accomplishment for sure. It sure is. And I mean, even winning the pole, you know I mean? Like, I think there's two races where a driver really wants to win the pole in the Cup Series. One's Daytona 500, and the other, the other is the Coca-Cola 600. Yeah, for um, sure. And speaking of the Coca-Cola 600, it was a fun weekend for me. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take it back a little bit, a few days to the 600. Uh, Kyle Larson uh, pretty well dominated that race uh, from the pole. It just makes me wonder, Ben. You know, he almost didn't win the pole. He only bagged it by like a hundredth of a second of a Ricky Stenhouse Jr. If if Stenhouse beats into the pole, 
Larson starts on the you know the unpreferred outside groove, probably gets passed by Stenhouse and Chase Elliott on the first lap. Uh, that really could have changed the whole complexion complexity of that race. If um, complexion complexity, I think it's complexion. Mm-hmm. It would have changed the, the whole format, the result of that race, in my opinion. If uh, if Larson didn't have that extra hundredth of a second in his pocket uh, when he won the pole for the six hundred, and it just goes to show you. Uh, how something like that, how that advantage can can be so important for a guy because, you know, he starts second, he's not going to fire off as well. Like I said, Chase probably passes him. Chase probably passes Stenhouse. Chase probably dominates the first two stages. And, you know, Larson's got to chase him down, no pun intended, and and try to get by him as the race goes on and stay out front. And he certainly doesn't lead as many laps as he did uh, in the 600 if he didn't win the pole. So that goes to show you it's another example of how track position even for a 600-mile race, can be very important because what you do in the first stage of all these cup races, Ben, it doesn't give you any points till they wave the flag on stage one, but you position yourself in a way that... And sometimes you can almost suck out the other teams, I feel like. like He was doing so well. I bet you some of the other drivers and crew chiefs were like, all right, we got to take a swing and try and catch him, even if we're running pretty well, because if we don't, he's just going to run off and leave us. And I don't know if they tried that avenue or not. I'm sure some of them did. But he ran off and left him anyway. Uh, yeah, just an he insane did. performance from from, yeah. from start to finish. It, it was, and my question is where where did he find it, and did he find it basically three areas? Did he find it under the hood? Did he find it in the chassis somewhere, or did he find it basically in the seat of his pants? I mean, somewhere. Where did you find that little bit? Because every car out in the field this day and time, there there are no secrets anymore. There used to be. Yeah. But everything is so incredibly tight now among all the race teams and the drivers, and there's no, there are really no secrets anymore. And so when you're out there, and I think what he lead 340 laps of this race out of what 400. Mm-hmm. Where did he find what he found? And it, and again, I think in my humble opinion, it had to be. Had to be engine, had to be chassis, or had to be seat of the pants. It could be seat of the pants. This guy's really, really good at dirt track racing as far as sprint cars. And who knows, he might have found something that felt good uh, at a particular place on the racetrack. And that, I mean, I, I'm just fascinated by that because uh, to be that far out and to be able to hang on to the lead and I just would, I will never know what he found because he's not going to tell me that. But it's just fascinating to me that he had something in his back pocket, so to speak. And, you know, and that's what's so cool about it is when he goes back there to the 600 in 2022, obviously he's going to have a different race car, a different setup, a different wheel base, a different whatever. Everything's sure. going to be different. So unfortunately for be, him. Unfortunately for him, he's not going to be able to use it again. But, and that you know, and I want to go back to something you said before about Truex and about Bush and about uh, you know Martin being the leaders over there, so to speak, at, at Gibbs. Wouldn't it be fun to be the fly on the wall in some of these driver crew chief meetings that they have every what, every Tuesday morning at yeah. 10 a.m. Because you know we see how these guys are performing on the racetrack and and how they are teammates and such. But wouldn't it be fun to sit in on one of those? and find out how close of friends are they. <laughs> I bet you, know, you Kyle Busch and Chase Elliott were pretty quiet in the Tuesday after the 600 meetings. Yeah, it's like, how would, wouldn't it be fun to sit there and say, all right, 
I mean, how, why did you outrun me at the 600? And what do you have that I don't have? Because these drivers are always whining and moaning about horsepower. And are you, <laughs> no. Are you, yeah. Are you getting, uh, am I getting the same horsepower you're getting? Sure. This has been going on, honestly, since they built since Super Speedway. 1948. Really? Yeah. I mean, I mean serious. It is. At least, yeah. yeah. At least since they built Darlington in 1950 and Raleigh Speedway and, you know, 52 or three, whenever it came, I mean, everybody's yeah. been whining about, did you get, especially on a two car team and the, and nobody has ever liked having a multi-car team because that means you got to share, share, share. They don't like to share. They really want to, they want all the uh, attention on themselves they, and they yeah. do. They want the, all the attention on themselves. So if you could sit down, if you could be the book on the bookcase or you could be the fly on the wall and say, I just want to know, man. I just want to know. Yeah, that one at Hendrick really, would be pretty fun because, yeah, you're, you're, be it's, fun. A, it's a valid point. Those Hendrick cars finished first, second, fourth, and fifth in the 600. Um, they finished first, second, third, and fourth at Dover. Um, they're, they're just flat out faster than everyone else right now at, at most every yeah. racetrack. Um, but, so a couple points, Ben, to, uh, to, to discuss what you were, were bringing up about what was the secret for Larson. I'll tell you this. This is a, a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I, ha- I too, have also followed NASCAR for a lifetime. At no point have I ever heard until the Coke 600 race weekend television broadcast have I ever heard the phrase trimmed out used to describe a stock car. Now, in, in an Indy car, that's fairly common, uh, particularly at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Trimmed out, for you guys who don't know, that is um, doing whatever you can, lowering the downforce decreasing the handling potential to make that car as fast in a straight line as possible. Well, they were discussing in practice, Ben, how Eric Jones, the number 43 Richard Petty Motorsports car, could be so fast. And they were showing him on the back straightaway. Uh, you know, they have that uh, illustration where they have two cars. Um, and it shows you the speeds. I think that's one of the coolest things Fox has. Um, and so they're showing this, and, and uh, Larson was hitting 182, down the back stretch at Charlotte, and Jones was hitting 184. But the difference was they were making it up. Jones' car was trimmed out a lot. Uh, you know, you're sacrificing handling for straight line speed. Larson's was a little bit more of a balanced setup. So when they go into turn three, Larson, in terms of lap time, eats him alive. He was like half a tenth. He was like half a tenth down, and then just eats him alive. Jones has to lift more to get his car on the bottom. Larson doesn't. Car's hooked up. Hug the bottom. Um, like a kid hugging his, his mom, and and that's how he won the pole. Same way, Stenhouse really should have won the pole, Ben, when I look back on it. He pushed up pretty bad in three and four and just missed bagging it anyway, and and that made the difference. I think that's one of the big things was Larson's car was as, as balanced as, as could be. Some other guys were fighting different things, and he, I really think he just managed traffic really well. Uh, which probably doesn't hurt that he's got experience from doing that racing sprint cars where you've got to come up and lap people over five or six laps. Seemed like he was doing that for quite a bit of the 400 laps and Coke 600 as well. And then the other thing you mentioned was seat of the pants. Uh, very valid point. We've discussed this briefly on the podcast, I think. But when you look at the people who've been really successful at Charlotte, I'll throw out some names. Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, uh, Kyle Larson. Casey Kane, Jimmy Johnson, Kyle Busch. What do they all have in common, Ben? Well, they're they're good at making a car do what they want they, the car to do. In other words, they can slide a car where they want it to 
they can make a car do what they want it to do. I guess is it's the best that, way to put it. and they can drive any type of car. And That's what I, I'm I think, yeah, yeah, it's having that that uh, you if you're a versatile race car driver who's driven, if you're you know Jimmy Johnson, if you've driven trophy trucks or dirt late models or sprint cars or you know or go karts or whatever, those guys, uh, whoever has the the more um, versatile resume, those guys tend to run really really well at Charlotte. It's it's very often been that way. Um, not always the case, certainly, but you know, the guys we mentioned, they, they've, they're the, the type who could drive anything, would drive anything and had a lot of success at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Um, but then again, for whatever reason, Tony Stewart didn't. And so, and he's, you know, I think a lot of people would regard him as the king of dirt racing in terms of dirt racing and NASCAR. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you know, we, we've talked about how challenging a racetrack Charlotte can be, um, but it wasn't much of a challenge for Kyle Larson this year. It also, there's been a few times in the history of the 600 that it's not been a, much of a challenge for the guy who won. Um, our driver of the week is another one, Martin Truex Jr. We talked about this in episode 18 about how dominant Truex was in the 2016 Coke 600, which still, I think, Ben, I think this is a record like Petty's 200 wins or Dale Jr.'s four in a row at Talladega. Something's not ever going to get broken the fastest race in history of the Coca-Cola 600 was 2016. The cars were faster then in terms of the aero package. There was also, it was last year before, stage cautions. So there's only like two or three organic cautions throughout that race. Truex set a blistering pace. It's the fastest by time and the fastest by average speed in the history of the 600. Uh, people were asking me throughout the night of the, of, of the 600 this year, is Larson going to beat this? This is the fastest 600 ever. I was like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. We only had two organic cautions this year. Uh, Ryan Newman crashing and Kurt Busch blowing an engine, but still, no, it, it didn't approach it because you know certainly the speeds are lower. Um, but that 2016 led 392 out of 400 laps. Man, that's that's a record that I don't think is mm-hmm. ever going to get broken on its own. Uh, that's the most dominant performance I've probably ever seen in my lifetime in a major NASCAR race. I mean, mm-hmm. he was faster on 30, 40 lap old tires, and people were on fresh tires. He was straight away in Jimmy Johnson at a time when you just didn't straight away Jimmy Johnson. Um, he just turned everybody else in the field into an afterthought. And it's happened a few times over the course of 600 Ben. Um, another one, Jimmy Johnson himself did in the mid 2000s. Jimmy led about 330, 340 laps in a 600. Um, absolutely dusted him. This was the Lowe's car at what was then known as Lowe's Motor Speedway. You, you just, you know, you don't spin in the wind. Uh, you don't mess around with Jimmy Johnson. It's a couple <laughs> of things that are just unadvisable yeah. decisions, just not a smart decision. Um, so th- th- that's a couple that stick out. Um, but there's another one that, that you know of that happened well before the days of Truex leading 392, of Kyle Busch leading 377 in 2018, just about as insane. Uh, and Larson and Jimmy Johnson. There's one more you got in your back pocket from a pretty insane 600 performance. Who pulled it off? Yeah, it was uh, Jim Pascal, I think, in 1966, driving, I believe, for Petty Enterprises. And that one was in the 360 range, maybe. Mm-hmm. It was just out to lunch, different time zone, gone. Uh, Did he dominant. win all the stages? Well, uh, yeah, because they were none. <laughs> <laughs> stage one was 400 laps. Yeah, the only stages back in those days were those at the at the movie theater at the uh, at the Broadway shows. There you there go. There were no stages. There were there were no stages. So, uh, but yeah, it's uh, there. There are times when uh, the drivers and the cars just hook up and they're gone, and 
and it's a long, long race. But you know, back to back to a point that you you hit on a little bit ago. You've got Dale Earnhardt, you've got Kyle Larson, you've got Jeff Gordon. Those guys that were so good on dirt coming into these races. But here's the me- the mental side of it that you have to remember. Those drivers, especially Dale Earnhardt, and I guess you could put Jeff Gordon in this case too. You, those guys would say to their race car, look, here's the deal. I'm going to dominate you. You're not going to dominate me. Right. Okay. Meaning that I'm going to tell you where I'm going to put you today, whether it's a really tight spot, high in turn four, and I'm going to go three wide. I'm going to dominate you, race car. You're not going to tell me how you're going to perform. I'm going to make you do what I want you to do. You're a sixth place car today, but I'm going to make you a winner. And that's what made Dale Earnhardt so good because he learned on those dirt tracks that I have got to win with you today. And that's just the way it is. That's next level car control. Exactly. And they, they just, you know, because Earnhardt was so good at, he would slide down in the seat and he'd make that car fit him the way he wanted the car to act the way you know what I'm saying? Yeah. He would want the thing to, he would slide down in the seat, fix the the controls the way he wanted to do it. Like, you're just going to do what I say do. Ben, period. would you sit really low in the seat if you were a race car driver? Uh, maybe. I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't like it. I'd probably have that Newman, that Ryan Newman stance where he's like, he's sitting up high. It's almost like a barber chair, like looking down. I'd want to see that. Because see, my thing is like, what if I'm having a great run and I'm leaning way back in the seat like Earnhardt was and I run over something? Maybe the spotter doesn't see it, you know, and I can't see yeah. it because I'm sitting so low. Um, you know, there's advantages to both to, to both uh, viewing points or positions, you could say, in the cockpit. But I think I don't want to sit up higher. I want to see more of the track surface yeah. and still be able to see the cars around me than, um, than, than how Earnhardt <laughs> did. But, man, well, he made it work, didn't he? He made it work, yeah. I, I, I did. Maybe some of our listeners don't realize this, but I, when I was much younger and maybe a lot less smart than I am now, I did drive race cars right out of high school. But I was I had a very, very tight budget. And I just, you know, I knew that if I wrecked anything I was driving, my racing career was pretty much over. Right. So I didn't challenge a lot during the at the front of the field i was just i was one of those independent drivers <laughs> you know that's right at the, back at the back of the field i was giving the leaders something to pass it was because, a, a term used in the 60s through the 80s it was called stroker you just kind of stroking it was a, a <laughs> term that junior johnson used a lot and it's also of course the um the namesake of uh stroker ace from the movie yeah. stroker ace which we've discussed but i will say this aaron I was determined to have one of the best looking race cars out there. Absolutely. It may not it may not have been as fast as some of the guys that passed me, but it was one of the best looking race cars. Oh man, that's the game plan for me too in our racing. Like, you know, I might be trash at a certain racetrack, but like we're gonna look tough. Like I, I might run I might run fifteenth in a twenty three car lobby, but I'm gonna I'm gonna look a badass fifteenth every lap. Yeah, you better believe and, it. And I gotta tell you this too while we're on the subject. The first time I ever met Dale Earnhardt was at Caraway Speedway in Ashboro. And I thought I was you were going to say the, it was in an iRacing lobby. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was actually running in the in the limited sportsman division. He was in the big, bad, late models. This is mm-hmm. about the time he started running for Osterlin in the Cup Series, but he was still running some late model stuff. So like 78, 79. Yeah, yeah, okay. right, 79. 
and uh, he was in the in the the premier late models, and I was in the limiteds, and it's like, dang, there's Dale Earnhardt, and he was crossing over a little step bridge over the infield guardrail, mm-hmm. and I was like going over that same little thing, and I shook his hand and said, hi, Dale, I'm Ben White, and he said, hey, buddy, and there you go. And I shook his hand and he crossed over and on the way to his car. And I thought, man, I shook hands with Dale Earnhardt. It was about three or four years later is when I started writing about, you know, NASCAR. But at sure. that time I was driving. Oh, that's a, and, yeah. That's a, that's that grand national guy, that rookie. He's, he might be something one day. Yeah, boy. And I was, you know, I was just on cloud nine. I actually shook hands later on. We became friends because I was writing about NASCAR. But at that time I was on the same racetrack as Dale Earnhardt. And I just thought that's cool. But I, was determined i thought well you know what i've got a limited budget and i'm not going to get out here and, and crash my race car to win spend ten thousand dollars to win a hundred yeah but i'm gonna i'm gonna get out here and, and my car is gonna look nice and and i and i did have a nice looking race car so there you go i mean i, I knew that my budget was limited and you know what i mean i sure I, I wanted to get out there and have some fun and call myself a race driver so and i did it and i'm proud of what i did i didn't win but Hey, I was out there, so there you go. Are you more proud of that, or are you more proud of the um, driving on interstate after riding with Bobby Allison? Which <laughs> oh, one no, gives no. you more pride? I, the one that gives me the most pride is the fact that I got on the interstate, and I was doing 110, and I didn't get caught by the North Carolina Highway Patrol. That's what I'm most proud of. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Amen would, to that one, man. I would probably still be there in jail, and people would still be sending me cakes with files in them, probably. <laughs> Hopefully, they just don't have you in stocks so they could throw something at you. That'd be the worst. Yeah. I just really, man, I'm telling you, I just did not know I was going so fast. That was that was bad. That was that was terrible. But anyway. But you were doing so, it in a straight line for the most part I was, through I was. Salisbury. Imagine carrying that kind of speed on a road course in a cup car. Uh, I tell you what, seriously, Aaron, here's the deal. When you get on a racetrack like Charlotte Motor Speedway and you're doing 160 miles an hour mm-hmm. and you're you really are moving fast and you don't you're proud of yourself for getting to that speed and you've yep. learned a lot during a, a, a school. Right. And you imagine though that, all right, you're not out there by yourself and you've got 39 other guys with you at your topping speeds of 170, 180, and you're actually racing people. I mean, that, there's a lot. I respect those guys that do that on a weekly basis, 36 weeks a year. I mean, there is some serious talent out there because I mean, gosh, think about what I'm saying. You got 39 other guys out there ready to eat your lunch for 400 laps. That, I'm telling you, that's that's some serious talent to be able to do that. It is, and, and drivers in the Cup Series now are so much more balanced in terms of, of skill on, on different racetracks. Their versatility is really something I think people don't give them enough credit for. Uh, a few years yeah. ago, Ben, I was talking to my man Wally Dollenbach Jr., and it's well documented how much I love the Petty 43 car, and you know, as soon as Wally started driving that car in 1994 that was my guy um but uh i was talking with wally about um it was before the first roval race so we chatted for a while about road racing how it's evolved in nascar from not just from a driver's perspective but also from how the teams have valued it because he was like you know they used to look at it as all right we had two races around sears point watkins Glen, and let's just get the hell out of there and try to get a top 20 and just throw whatever car we got in the back of the shop just you know just try to survive better than the other guys try to survive. Now there are so many road course races, Ben, and the mm. drivers have such uh, more of a distinct road racing background in a lot of cases that 
the days of your Dorsey Schroeders and Wally Dollenbacks, Boris Seds, uh, Jacques Villeneuve. I mean, there's there's so many. Tommy Kendall, the the the, the road racing aces that that kind of jump in. Ron Fellows. I'd, I'd be remiss not to to include him. Uh, those days are pretty much gone, you know. Um, yeah. uh, Scott Pruitt's another one. Uh, finished second or third at the Glen in 03, I think it was, in a Ganassi car. But now you've got guys who are coming up to the Cup Series that have extensive road racing experience, and it's not a plus anymore. Now it, it's almost a requirement. No different mm-hmm. than like in the 70s and 80s if you had a college degree that got you a leg up on the competition in a lot of places. Now a college degree is the foundation. That's the starting point in a lot of places. It's got, oh. it's evolved just like with racing in the cup series guys have got to get good at road courses. Um, and that's, what's impressive about our driver of the week too. Martin Truex Jr. I promise Martin's not paying us for this, but like, you know, the guy's a hell of a race car driver. There's a lot you can say about how good he is. We haven't touched on his road racing yet. He's the top three road racer on the low end in the cup series, but he doesn't really have that background. He just got so good at it. And, you know, you got to respect somebody like that. Certainly the road course king is uh, William Clyde Elliott II, um, Bill Elliott Jr., Chase Elliott, to those who know him well. Um, Chase is, is an absolute shoe on the road courses. Um, but it's an accomplishment to even just run well and beat a bunch of other cup guys. You don't even have to win a road race. Just to run really well and finish the top three, finish the top five at some of those racetracks it's really impressive. And this year, you know, in addition to having Sonoma and the Glen and the Roval, adding in places like Circuit of the Americas, Road America, um, really add some new wrinkles to the Cup Series schedule. Um, but, you know, being a road course discussion with me would be remiss if I didn't bring up Riverside and how I wish that that shopping center and apartment complex was still a racetrack because that place looked absolutely fun as hell to race on. Oh, yeah, for sure. I have to say I never went to Riverside. I went to Sonoma many times, and I went to Watkins Glen many times. Yeah. But, yeah, and the thing you have to remember when you're talking about a road course, it's very much like rowing a boat and a a lake. I've never heard that that comparison before, so I wish you did. Throw some knowledge on me, Ben. Okay, I will, because what's happening is when you're shifting up and down on these around these turns – for what 90 laps whatever they are yeah you're in and out of the out of the clutch and you're you're shifting up and down up and down up and down you're turning right turning left so you're moving your arms and legs all the time through these through these turns and the very best of the guys that are doing this is, is you're sort of working a rhythm through these turns and that's why that you have to be in such good physical shape and and the more of these road courses that we add to the schedule on the cup side and the expanded side, uh, the more great shape you have to be in. And as you said, we're getting more and more road courses uh, on the schedule. And even to the point there's talk about maybe doing some street racing down the road. We don't know when that's going to happen, but who knows three to five years from now, you might see some of these races go into cities where, you know, they block off part of the cities. Like we've seen some sports car races and that have done that. So, yeah, and some of the best of these road course drivers have mastered this rhythm to be able to to do road course races. And that's what that's. And you're right. In the past, you would have six or eight road course ringers is what they used to call them, Mm -hmm. where they would come in and the guy was either they'd start the race and then they put the road course ringer in or they just say, you just drive it this week and they'd let them get in the cars. And most of them had like IMSA or open wheel racing backgrounds. Right. They did. And, and so, 
And I know of one particular driver who was so good at road course racing, my buddy Bobby Allison, that every time he would master Riverside or he would master Watkins Glen, so, so good on the road courses. David Pearson was really good on road courses. And, did Bobby uh, ever have a – he never had anybody, like, sub for him. Like, he never, like, brought in a ringer, did he? No, he never did because he was so good. And, as a matter of fact, he was so good at, at driving road courses. A lot of times he would uh, – sometimes he would get in some of the other cars, like the open-wheel cars and sports cars and such that, as I said on previous podcasts, he would make the guy who had his name on the roof line so mad – that you know he would come in and run a car three and four seconds faster than the guy who was hired to drive the car. <laughs> he was so he was so good. At and that's any type course. of car too, by the way. Yeah. That's a dirt late model. That's any type of car. Yeah, and and a lot of times he would ask them, uh, they would like say the national networks not to show uh, a camera inside the car because he had his own tricks about how to do that. And later on, he told me he said. I didn't want him to show my feet because a lot of times what I would do is I wouldn't push in the clutch when I would uh, shift because I could gain so much, so many seconds a lap. Yeah, you just time it right on the tack and just, and just right. shift. Exactly, and that's that was my trick, and he would be so far ahead by doing that. Now that he's been retired from driving for 25 or so years, he kind of let that secret out. But uh, for years, he said, I don't want a camera in my car because I'm not, I'm not pushing in the clutch. I'm not using my feet. You're right. He would time it with the tack to where he could just shift, and suddenly the man's like four or five seconds ahead, and he could master Riverside and some of these racetracks, and very, very good on road courses. Um, yeah, and there's this common misconception that Bobby Allison, one of his nicknames, B.A., stood for Bobby Allison. It actually was short for badass um, <laughs> because he definitely he knew how to wheel one. Yeah, there's another ringer that I – a couple ringers I haven't – brought up yet one is the great al unser a four-time winner of the indianapolis 500 big al sub for buddy baker and uh at watkins yeah. glenn i think it was in 1986 i thought that was I really think. interesting that yeah. you had somebody who won the indianapolis 500 three times to that point he won it for the fourth and final time the next year in 87 uh, he was a road course ringer driving for buddy baker i think i think it was 86 86 or 87 sounds right Mm-hmm. And then there's one. That's all that matters, man. I just try to give them a club length from there. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, one more road ringer, road course ringer, that I got to bring up is uh, is Mister Two Sixty Nine, and that's Rick Hendrick. Um, if you guys didn't know, Rick Hendrick has actually competed in a couple of uh, Cup Series races um, in the 1980s. I believe they were all at Riverside, as it were. Um, but yeah, Rick Rick jumped behind the wheel of um, of a cup car a couple times and competed in races, which is a little known fact. You would think like the with uh, his road racing background, maybe Jack Roush would have given it a shot because how successful he was in Trans Am beforehand. But um, no, Mister H is definitely, you know, he he's he's one of those car owners like Richard Childress who has the experience of having driven in a Cup Series race uh, and also certainly owning a championship winning Cup Series team, much like Tony Stewart, much like. Uh, yeah, a lot of them. Um, the Wood Brothers also ran races way back in the day, too. Uh, Richard Petty, I think he ran one or two cup races in his tenure. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not uncommon to see a team owner having driven a, a car in a race, but you normally, Ben, you wouldn't think that a guy would have owned a team for several years before he ran his first cup race. That's true, and, you know, I think Rick actually had a dream of driving cup series events uh, that was initially what he wanted to do, and I think it was a, a parental thing. I think his parents just uh, – matter of fact, I think it was his mom. I think he was a little bit afraid of his mom. <laughs> he yeah. just, his mom just said no, 
no, no, no, you're not going to be a race car driver. You can own cars, but you're just not going to. And he actually drove a little bit of uh, drag racing when he was 16, 17. But mom was pretty much the financier of the early racing. And finally, when she stopped writing the checks to Ray, he said, you're not going to drive racing uh, race cars, but I'll help you build them. And I'll help you in the early years of building the race cars, but you're not going to drive them. But it, after he became successful as a cup driver, I think he finally talked his wife into, okay, if I, if I drive a road course, is that okay? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Compromise, man. It's all about compromise. Yeah. 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 And deep in his heart, I think he really wanted to drive and finally said, okay, here's my chance. Now that we're successful at Hendrick Motorsports, maybe this will be okay to drive a road course or two and kind of get it out of my system a little bit. So that's kind of how that happened. But but yeah, and, and of course, he's been an ultra successful team owner and winning 269 races and many, many championships. And, and counting. Uh, and counting. Yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, and, I, and I, I go back to look at how Hendrick Motorsports began in a two, two uh, stall garage with two garage doors owned by Harry Hyde and had to pull the boats out of, of that building to put two cars in there. And Jeff Bodine won the first race in 1984 at Martinsville. And now you see where we are. And it's just amazing how he has built Hendrick Motorsports to what it is today. But very, and I remember him telling me, I wrote a book with, uh, with about Hendrick Motorsports uh, many years ago. But he was mm-hmm. telling me about how we came so close after about six, seven races of closing the doors completely. And he said, if we don't go to Martinsville and win this week, we're going to end the whole thing. We don't have the money to continue. And they ended up winning that race in 84 and yep. that's that in April of 84. And that's how close they came to locking the doors and there was not going to be a Hendrick Motorsports. Imagine the cup series because without a Hendrick Motorsports, Jeff Gordon either drives for Bill Davis or Jack Roush in the cup series, probably yeah. Bill Davis because Jeff did not like that. He couldn't take Ray Everham with him to Roush because um, Roush offered him a ride. But uh, Jack's policy at that time, at least was that, you know, I picked the driver and I assigned him a crew chief and Jeff yeah. didn't like that. And that was one of the reasons that he left Bill Davis in the Bush series and went to Hendrick instead of going to Roush because Rick let him take Ray Everham with him. Maybe if those are off the table, um, you know, who knows? Maybe Jeff Gordon sticks with Bill Davis and drives a 22 car and Jeff Gordon driver of the number 22 MBNA Pontiac would have become a thing. Um, yeah. And, and here's another part too. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, oh, Aaron, but here's, here's another part. Did you know that Kenny Rogers, the singer, and the Richard gambler. Petty, yeah, and Richard Petty was going to be Rick Hendrick's first driver. That's a true story, too. And that all kind of fell apart at the last minute. And so it would, have been already, a, it would have been like a deal with Kenny Rogers? Yeah. And okay. and that uh, that whole deal was going to come together. And at the last minute, that kind of fell apart. And uh, so he already rented equipment and rented a shop and rented all these things he didn't own. But they were too deep into it to for it not to happen. And so, and ironically, Tim Richmond was going to be his first driver yep. and Tim couldn't make up his mind if he wanted to do it or not. So Jeff Bodine went to city Chevrolet, the first dealership. I remember that you and, said he like, what he like waited there for like eight or nine hours or whatever, yeah, to, just to yeah, convince he, Hendrick that he deserved this ride. Yeah. And he said, I'll, he said, I don't know what's going to happen, Jeff. You might as well just go home. And I'm waiting on Tim. Tim has a contract. And he said, well, I'll just stick around until till Tim decides what he wants to do. And he sat there for hours. Yeah, and Tim bailed, right? 
Jim bailed, and he finally said, well, it looks like he's got till 3 o'clock to make up his mind, and 3 o'clock passed and said, okay, I'm going to sign you as my driver. And Tim later on did come to work for Rick as a second driver. But, I mean, it's just amazing to me. We could probably donate, devote a whole podcast to the what-ifs of, you know, how things yeah went down at hendrick but, but yeah man if I mean, hendrick shuts down in 84 though man that's the 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 that's cataclysmic changes throughout the that ripple effect is insane throughout the history of the cup series because but but you know to that to that point man you just made i think it was a smart call on rick hendrick's part because jeff bodine was a good he was a good foundation for that race team yeah. i don't think they win one of their first seven stars with richmond um, not the least of which because he was still becoming better on the shorter ovals, and that's what early in the, the 84 season, you know, those were more common than road courses. So if Tim doesn't win, you know, early, early in the year, it, maybe they shut the team down and none of this happens. So I think circumstantially it wound up being a good thing because Bodine was able to kind of provide that um, that foundation, and God knows that if you would have started with Tim Richmond and Harry Hyde, they definitely wouldn't have made it through the 84 season. No. You had to get Harry Hyde with Jeff Bodine for a couple of years, let him enjoy some success, then pair Harry and Tim together and Gary Nelson and Jeff Bodine together. And then you got that. Then, then you're building up a super team that, that attracted Darrell Waltrip there in 1987. But, right. yeah, just uh, so much accomplishment, uh, so many accomplishments by Rick Hendrick throughout his NASCAR Cup Series career. And the thing that I've always liked about Hendrick is just how – how modest he is um you know the press conference after the 600 you know he's just a he's he's just as as typical normal a guy he he probably um has more influence over the sport than all but a, a small you know a few people but um you know they're doing the press conferences right now and they're on zoom but you got people in the media center too so if somebody in the media center asks a question it makes it um, echo really bad. And Rick like, couldn't hear. So at one point he was like, I don't know how old I'm getting, but I'm having trouble hearing you. So is there any other way we can do this? And it was just like a plight. <laughs> it was like kind of funny yeah. that, um, you know, the, the Zoom calls have not, um, Mr. H has not gotten uh, on board with the Zoom calls after races yet. But he's definitely <laughs> yeah. happy to be in there and, and uh, talking to the media after winning another 600, what I believe was the, 12th in the history of Hendrick Motorsports. Yeah, well, you know what? There's another part of that puzzle, too, real quick, and uh, talk about uh, Hendrick Motorsports winning at, at Martinsville in April of 84. Another part that maybe people have forgotten is Jeff Bodine had won several modified races at Martinsville prior to that. So he was a holy terror there at Martinsville and and very much so a winner and, and a front runner there at that track. So he sort of knew how to handle a car there even though a cup car weighed quite a bit more than what modifieds did right if you if you look at the media center there at martinsville there's some big really nice black and whites of some pretty wild finishes that jeff had been involved in there with the richie evans and several others and uh, so so jeff was very well versed at that racetrack and knew how to win there and Aren't so, one of those pictures in the bathroom, Ben? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I seem to recall it's either the <laughs> Bristol or the Darling or the Martinsville bathroom. They like they got those nice like pictures. And I think one of them, I think they extended like they, I guess they didn't have enough room because you know Martinsville's media center is, is the the size. It's um, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, it, it's uh, but it's, but it's nice. It's yeah, nice. It, it is. It's absolutely. I love it. It's super awesome to be in there. But it's it's um, 
I can't think of the word right now, but it's definitely appropriate for, you know, a small racetrack to have a small media center where no different than 40 cars are cramped uh, Mm -hmm. twice a year. Uh, media members are cramped in there yeah. twice a year as well, and you got to get there early just to get a seat. Period. Uh-huh. Um, but it's a cool racetrack. I, I think I really think that one of those Jeff Bodine pictures they put in the bathroom at some point. So I don't know. Have, like, is that remember. like a? Would you feel better about that? Like, would you rather your picture be put in the bathroom because they had to like, you know, it got a lot of space since then, obviously, to, you know, know, a lot of great moments. I, or would you rather take it down? Period. I think I'd rather have them hang it in the bathroom because at least I'm they're not, looking at it. I don't know. I'm not. I don't remember. I don't know. I'm not, I don't remember where it is. But I, I do know this: there are some really, really cool ones all around the media center. Back in the days when they had the board fencing, and yep. you know when they've had some cup races there, uh, you know, early in the early days. But I mean, I love, love, love the history of this the sport, and I love how they got them up around. But yeah, that that day. It, I, I could go on and on. We could have a two-hour podcast, and I need to be quiet about all this. But it's just—I just love talking about history. But yeah, that and and another thing about that race, and I can move on here. But that day was the day I worked with Ned Jarrett and Benny Parsons for MRN Radio. That's right. You were the runner then, right? I was the runner that day. Okay. And and Neil Bonnet was driving for Junior Johnson in the number twelve Budweiser car. And Neil had hit someone in the back end, and it broke his wrist. And I remember running up to the that was at this pergola-looking thing in the media in the infield. Mm-hmm. And that's where they had set up the MRN broadcast and the microphones. And I came back up, and there was Ned Jarrett and Betty Parsons standing there. And they they asked me to go down and talk to Junior and said, "Why is Neil dropping back?" And I did. And I came back and said, "Junior thinks that Neil broke his wrist." And you know how how some, there's two people standing there, and they both looked at me in unison like, what? Are you sure you heard him right? I said, Ned, I promise you I heard him right. He said, Neil broke his wrist because he got it caught on the steering wheel. So they broadcast that out, but they looked at me like, you better be right. And I said, I'm telling you I'm right. And then, of course, they talked to him after the race, said, yeah, I broke my wrist. Uh, I did something I got it caught in the wheel when I hit someone in the rear end. And Neil was bad to break bones pretty easily and as his career went on. And uh, and that was the truth. And, and he had a yeah. cast on his hand for the next six, eight weeks. But it was one of those freak things where he tapped someone in the rear. Someone hit him and knocked him into someone else. But I'll never forget the look on their face faces. They're like, are you out of your mind? It's like, no, I'm telling you the truth. And that's but what, but you were proven right later. Yeah, yeah. So I that's mean, what they, matters. Yeah, and and they said, well, that is the truth. I had somebody verify it, and this, one of the crew guys, the yep, he broke his wrist. It's like, yeah, nah, 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 I told you. <laughs> you should have taken a picture of the moment, Ben. Maybe they'd have hung it in the bathroom. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, oh, Jeff. I just remember Jeff winning that race, and I thought this is cool—a new face in victory lane. I just thought that was really neat the way new that... face, new team. This Hendrick, these Hendrick guys, yeah. this all-star race, and they might they might make something of themselves. Yeah, and, and I remember 268 kind of, wins later. <laughs> yeah, and that was kind of the the mindset. It's like, wow, this new race team. This guy named Rick Hendrick, as car dealer from Charlotte, has won a Cup race. How about that, ladies and gentlemen? He's beat the big dogs in one of those deals, and yep. it was just it was a neat deal. I love Cinderella finishes. Love new, seeing new faces in victory lane. As I always have, and it's just cool the way it came down. And now here we are, you know, years and years, decades later, and we see where we are. But it all started from that one victory, and here we go. 
Yeah, that's what's crazy is even then, I think Petty Enterprises to that point had 264 wins. Um, so at that point, it was 264 to 1. Now it's 269 yeah. to 268. So yeah. um, it's been a, uh, a truly uh, phenomenal run, and it's still going for Hendrick Motorsports. And they're probably going to win a bunch more races this year as well because um, they've already taken quite a few checkered flags between all four of their drivers. Um, but speaking of taking the checkered flag, Ben, I think we've crossed the finish line on episode mm-hmm. number 19 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. It's been a blast as always chatting it up with you. Can't wait to yep. do it again soon. Uh, we'll be back with episode number 20. Who are we going to talk about in episode 20? Could we talk about Tony Stewart, Christopher Bell, Eric Jones, Joey Logano? Uh, there's all kinds of 20s. Rob Moroso. Um, it could be anybody. You never know mm-hmm. who we're gonna who we're gonna discuss in episode twenty. Uh, but before we get to episode twenty, throw a rating our way wherever you're listening. I'd love to hear your feedback. Um, like to know what uh, what you guys think about what we discuss. If there's anything that you want us our, our crack research team, which is known as Aaron and Ben, um, what what you'd like us to look up. Maybe we can th- throw some new knowledge your way. Um, but in the meantime, episode nineteen is complete. We're going to get ready for episode number 20. Uh, For Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. Thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. So long, everybody. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. 